So Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you sleeping? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Well, hello, Uni Church. It's great to be with you tonight. Great to be able to share God's word with you, uh, both tonight and for the next couple of weeks as well. So let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you've brought us together in your name, brought us together to listen to you speak to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you might teach us tonight how to speak to you. We pray, Lord, that you might teach us to pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My first memory of Mike comes from my first staff meeting here at St. Matthew's. We were having a meeting in the upper room in the hall where the, the wombats have their kids' ministry of a morning these days. And uh, we were all sitting down. I don't remember what I was talking about. Everything seemed to be going well. And to the right of me was Mike. And all of a sudden, he shot up. He stood up in his chair. And, you know, Mike, if you remember... All six foot four of him kind of loomed over me during this meeting, and I had no idea what was going on. I thought it's a real, it's a real power move to kind of stand up in a meeting. You know, you might like to try that at your workplace. You know, stand up during a meeting, and um, I thought, what have I done? Have I have I offended him? Have I said something that was wrong? Or and it must have showed on my face because immediately afterwards he he took me aside and and explained to me, no, no, actually he, he had a bad back. It's just only so long that. Mike could sit in a meeting before he, he needed to kind of stand up and, and stretch his back and stretch his legs. And so began a whole series of meetings where Mike would stand and the rest of us would sit as we talked about whatever it is that we were talking about. And, you know, I've never been quite so aware of my posture as I was whenever I was in Mike's presence because his was always uh, so neat and so perfect and mine is so terrible. Um, and I used to make a habit of sitting across from him, so at least I didn't kind of have to crane my neck and need a physiotherapist to move it again after I'd sat through a couple of hours of a meeting with him. But what also began that day was a gospel partnership that I will never forget. And Mike was a lot of things. He was a husband to Vicky. He was a father to Daniel, Isaac and Benji. He was a son to Ted and Yvonne. He was a brother to his own uh, brother and sister. He was a pastor. He was a good friend to many of us. But he was to me also a fellow soldier of Christ Jesus. He was a shepherd alongside me, a servant of the same master. God has given me the extraordinary privilege of working alongside 
some wonderful men and women in my service of him, and Mike will forever be remembered as one of the greats. He was someone in whom I had complete confidence. He always uh, reminds me, actually I was reading the book of Daniel just recently, and uh, Mike always reminded me of, of Daniel now, because there seemed to be nothing that Mike and his spreadsheets could not solve or could not do. He was an extraordinarily gifted man, and it was always a joy to sit under his teaching. And I'll always be thankful for the time that I got to work alongside him. Mike's diagnosis with pancreatic cancer 12 months ago hit so many of us, including myself, very hard. But one thing that greatly encouraged me about that time was that we became a people of prayer. As Mike got sicker and sicker, our prayers got more urgent. There was a new energy, there was a new impetus to our prayers. We, we gathered as a whole church to pray. We prayed in our congregations, we prayed in our small groups. People would pray together after church. It was an extraordinary moment. It was a wonderful moment and I've only seen it a few times in my life. A new eagerness and energy to our prayers. And we prayed for many things. And God answered our prayers in many ways. But above all, we prayed that Mike would be healed and that he would be returned to us. But he was not. He died in June this year. We prayed a lot and yet God, God did not give us what we asked for. And I remember the Sunday morning after Mike had died and after I'd, I'd preached... I remember someone came up to me straight away and they put their finger right on it. They said, Evan, what did God do with our prayers for Mike? I think that's a really important question for us to wrestle with. What did God do with our prayers for Mike? We prayed for him to be healed and yet he was not. What what happened? And it's not just around Mike, of course, is it? What does God do with any of our prayers? Especially those prayers that he does not seem to answer. And so I want to take us through this today. I want to spend some time in lots of different places in God's word tonight as we seek to answer this question. What happens when we pray? And I think there's three steps that happen. First of all, God listens to our prayers. Second of all, God considers our prayers. And lastly, God answers our prayers. And I'm going to go through those just one at a time tonight. And there's an outline on the screen up behind me now that you can already see. So firstly then, God listens to our prayers. God hears our prayers. Our God is not the kind of God who is so far away from us that he cannot hear us when we speak. God is not the kind of God who is so busy that he has no time to listen when we pour out our hearts to him. God is the kind of God who listens to our prayers. And we never see that told to us more beautifully than in the Psalms. And so in Psalm 18, for example, in Psalm 18, uh, we're told that God is our rock and our redeemer. He is our fortress and he is our deliverer. Why? Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. God is our fortress and our deliverer because God is a God who listens to our prayers. Or Psalm 34, verse 15. 
The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Apostle Paul even, sorry, the Apostle Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 12 where he encourages us that we can, we can go out into the world without fear and do good because God is the one who hears our prayers and will deliver us from trouble. Or then there's Psalm 145 verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. You see, the Lord is attentive to our cries for help. The Lord gives us our desires. He loves to give us our desires, especially when that desire is a cry for salvation. Proverbs 15, I think, sums it up beautifully. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And it is as simple as that. God hears the prayers of those he has made righteous and chosen as his very own possession. And in fact, it is so simple that Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 is the great boast of all of God's people, both back then and even now. Deuteronomy 4 says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them in the way that the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? So too it is with us. How blessed are we to have God's word that God would speak to us? And how blessed are we that we have a God who is so near us that he hears us when we speak to him? A God who listens to our prayers. God listens. And that's why the Bible constantly encourages us to pray. And so in Philippians chapter 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a great definition of prayer, isn't there, right in there? Prayer is pouring out the contents of our anxious hearts to God, not neglecting to be thankful in the process. There is nothing that we cannot tell him. There is nothing that we cannot ask him. And in place of our anxieties, the Apostle Paul says, God will give us peace. And that peace will keep us in Christ. Our need is emphasised as well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will for us is that we be a people of ceaseless prayer. Bold in approaching our God. Confident because we can approach our God. As we're told in 1 John chapter 5. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, 
we know that we have what we asked of him. The consistent promise of God is that he is more willing to hear our prayers than we ever are willing to pray. Prayer is to be the constant companion of the Christian. The great reformer, Martin Luther, he once said that to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is to spiritual life what breathing is to physical life. And that's God's vision for the Christian life. People always pouring out their hearts to God in prayer. Telling God how we feel. Sharing with God what we're afraid of. What worries us. Rejoicing with God about the good that he has done in our life. After all, if God is the last person that we share our worries with, then what sort of a Christian are we? And if God is the last person we share our joys with, then what sort of a Christian are we? There ought not to be a single day that passes that we do not spend time speaking with God. And there's nothing in our lives, no matter how big it might be or, or how tiny and minute it might be, that we cannot bring to our God in prayer. And we can do that precisely because God is willing and able to help and so 1 Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Once again, prayer is described as the casting off of our anxieties as we cast them onto God. It's an act of humility. It's an act of acknowledging how good God is and how small we are before him. And there are great incentives to pray. The mighty hand of God that can act. But more than that, we're told in verse 7, that he's the one who cares for us. Uh, If God was not interested in helping us, if God had no intention of helping us in the troubles of our lives, then his very great power would be useless to us. But in the scriptures, we meet a God who is both willing and able to help us. And to bear our anxieties. God is powerful and loving. He is mighty and he is caring. In just the right combination that we need. And particularly as what is impossible for us. Is possible for God. And so Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is not just able to do all that we ask. That alone would be a good reason to pray. God is actually able to do more than we ask. And God is able to do even more than we ask. God is able to do more than we could ever imagine to ask. That is how powerful our God is. And all of this, all of these passages, all of these reasons are the reasons why someone sitting in a room alone, talking to a person they cannot see and asking them for things, that person has not gone insane. 
When you think about prayer, it's a strange thing, isn't it? You are. You're, you're literally you're, you're speaking to someone who you cannot see. You're asking them for things. And yet most people would say that's insanity. Most people say that just doesn't make any sense at all. And actually, if all that God's word says about prayer is true, that person is the most sane in the world. That prayer is the most sensible activity any of us could ever participate in in any time. Because we are speaking to a God who is powerful and yet he loves us. And so we're speaking to a God who is listening. But secondly then, we're not just speaking to a God who listens to our prayer. We're also speaking to a God who considers what we say. That is, he thinks about what we say. He, he deliberates on what we say and he thinks about how he will respond to our prayers. And I think it's really important that we understand this step, that we understand our God properly here. Because sometimes it can be easy to imagine or to be tempted to imagine that God is kind of like a, a, a heavenly butler, you know, just kind of up there waiting for us to pray so that he might deliver to us whatever it is that we've asked for on a silver platter. Or that maybe God is like a, a divine vending machine that we can whack with prayer until the goodies rain down from the sky. But that's not what God is like. Our God is a great king. Our God has plans and purposes that predate the creation of our world. Our God is working out all things in conformity with his will, with his desires, his good and perfect desires. And so our prayer is, it's not a magic formula that somehow binds God. We do not twist God's arm by our prayers and somehow force him to do what we want. Oh, that's, the, that's what the, the magic and the sorcery of the ancient world was like, which is why Israel was told never to relate to God in that way. Instead, our prayer is the petitioning of a great king. It's an entering into the very throne room of God and kneeling before him, and it's an asking him that he might act. There's a wonderful line from a, a song that I used to sing when I was a little boy in church from, from John Newton, and it goes like this. It says... Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his strength and power are such, none can ever ask too much. That's what prayer is. We are asking God for things. And he considers how he will answer. He thinks about how he will answer. He thinks about his own plans. He weighs up his own desires. Before deciding, he will answer. But here's the extraordinary thing in all of this. God changes his mind in response to our prayers. And he even changes the very course of history in response to our prayers. And you'll never see that more clearly than in Exodus chapter 32. I wish I had time to take you through all of Exodus 32. It's a wonderful chapter. Uh, but Exodus 32, it's a, it's a horrible and yet wonderful moment in the story of God's people Israel. It's when uh, God has gathered his newly rescued people, liberated them from slavery in Egypt, and brought them to be his people to Mount Sinai. And Moses ascends up the mountain that is blanketed in the fire and the smoke of God's presence. The, the earth still heaves under the weight of God's glory. And he, Moses goes up to receive the law of God, the instructions that God has given so that Israel might know how now to be a holy people in relationship with a holy God. 
Only he's up there for quite some time. He's up there for 13 chapters in all. And in the meantime, the people of Israel commit a great sin. Instead of worshipping the one true God who has redeemed them, they bow down to a golden calf and worship it as their saviour. And it's a preposterous thing to do. You know, just weeks earlier, they had seen God pour out the ten plagues upon Egypt for Egypt's idolatry, and now they commit idolatry. They'd been rescued from Pharaoh's army through the Red Sea. They'd been fed with manna and quail in the desert. Even now, the mountain around which they they camped still trembles with the glory of God. But they bow down to a crude statue of a baby cow and call it God. And so God's anger rightfully burns against them. God decides that he will wipe Israel out and start again with Moses. And then comes the extraordinary thing. Then comes Moses' prayer. It's in verse 11 of Exodus 32. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then how did God respond in verse 14 to Moses' prayer? Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Just stop for a moment, just dwell on that verse 14. 14. God relented, literally it's God repented. God changed his mind. God was going to do one thing, he was going to wipe out Israel. And yet because Moses prayed, God changed his mind. And now instead God will have mercy and will show them the kindness that he had promised. All because Moses prayed. And God listened and God considered what Moses had said. God weighed up the arguments. He he considered his plans and so he changed his mind. And there on that day, Moses' prayer changed the course of history itself. How? I don't pretend to fully understand how this works. But the scriptures are full of these moments. Abraham, Hannah, David, Solomon, Elijah, Daniel, even the Lord Jesus himself. The Bible is full of moments where people pray and that prayer changes the world because God listens and considers and answers. One of the truly remarkable things that the Bible teaches us is this. God has chosen to use the prayers of his people as one of the ways that he works out his purposes in the world. By our prayers, we cooperate with God in the building of his kingdom. He chooses to use us. And in particular, he chooses to use our prayers. Sometimes God waits to act until his people pray. It's hard to believe, and yet that is what the Bible teaches us. And just... I just revel in this wonderful truth for a moment. God hears our prayers. God God considers them. And sometimes he even changes his mind in response to our prayer. 
In other words, our relationship with God, it's actually a two-way street. It's not all that just God speaks to us and we listen. It's not God commands us and, and we obey. That's not just how our relationship with God works. We also speak to him and he hears us and he is changed by our prayers. What an incredible thing. Never be tempted to imagine that prayer is a waste of time. Never be tempted to imagine that prayer is an alternative to to action. That it is powerless. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is action. Prayer is never a waste of time. Because our God listens. And our God considers what we pray for. And of course, lastly of all, God also answers our prayers. And here's where we come to the real heart of the matter. God answers our prayers. But of course, sometimes God says yes to our prayers and we rejoice. And sometimes God says not yet. It's not yet his timing. But sometimes God says no. Like he said to so many of our prayers for Mike. And our temptation is to look at the times when God says no and think, well, maybe God wasn't listening. And yet, of course, all those passages that we read, so many of them remind us again and again and again that God listens to our prayers. Or maybe we might say, well, yes, maybe he heard our prayers, but he didn't really think about them. He didn't really consider them. And yet, of course, again, we've been reminded tonight that God does consider our prayers. He does think upon our prayers when we pray them. Or sometimes we can be tempted to imagine that maybe the problem is me. And maybe I haven't had enough faith. Maybe I'm just not good enough a Christian for for God to say yes to my prayers. And I want to say that even though that feeling can be very natural, and even though I feel that feeling so often when I pray, I want to say that's not true either. Come with me to Mark chapter 14. Finally we reach our reading for tonight. Everything that I've said so far, it's just the introduction. It's the longest introduction you've ever heard to a sermon in your life. Don't worry, it's okay. We're almost at the end, my friends. I just want to take one point of this wonderful passage in Mark 14 for us. I just want to look at one verse, the, 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 the prayer of the Lord Jesus in Mark 14, verse 36. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now this is a wonderful moment in the gospel. It's a wonderful moment of intimacy between God and his own son. It's a moment of prayer in the most stressful and most gut-wrenching moment in Jesus' life. But it is also the most famous and most surprising no to prayer in all of the Bible. Because here is the perfect petitioner, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the very perfect son of God. And Jesus is praying the perfect prayer. Essentially, he's praying that an innocent man be rescued from those who hate him without reason. And he even prays, Jesus is humble enough to acknowledge that the decision is God's and God's alone. Not my will, but yours be done, he says at the end of his prayer. This is the perfect prayer. It's by the perfect petitioner. And yet, how does God choose to answer this prayer? God says no. 
God says no. God does not remove the cup of his wrath from Jesus. But from this moment onwards, Jesus is handed over to his accusers. Publicly flogged and humiliated and nailed to a cross where he died. God said no to this prayer of Jesus because God had something better in mind. Something greater in mind. God had in mind the salvation of us all. And so God says no to the perfect petitioner praying the perfect prayer. Because the better thing that he had planned was that the death that Jesus would die would be a death for our sins. And so that he might be raised to life again as the promise of eternal life for all those who believe and follow Jesus. And so by saying no, God actually did something even greater than saving an innocent man from death. God saved a guilty one. God saved a guilty people. God saved many from death. Our very salvation, the very thing that means that we can pray to God and he will listen to us, it all rests on God saying no to the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It all rests on God saying no to prayer. Because God had something better in mind. Tim Keller was another brother we lost to pancreatic cancer despite many prayers. And Tim Keller once said that when we pray, God either gives us what we asked for or he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that God knew. And so what did God do with our prayers for Mike? He said no. Because he said yes to something greater. Yes to something better. Something that if we knew what God knew and understood what God understood, we would have prayed for too. God did not heal Mike because he had something better in mind to take Mike to glory. And Mike knew those, those words in the beginning of Philippians well, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Mike, by his death, gained. He gained glory. So that the next time we see Mike, we will see him risen and glorious. We will see him healed. There'll be no more cancer. We'll even see all the other things about Mike healed as well. Mike's back will be healed. Mike will finally be able to sit down in a meeting with me and sit through the whole thing. I'm really looking forward to that. We will see Mike glorious and we will be glorious too. But God actually did something else as well. God did something not quite as glorious as resurrection, but almost as glorious. God taught us. God taught us many things through the death of Mike. God taught us to number our days, how short life really can be. God taught us to grieve, but not as those who have no hope, but instead as those who long for resurrection. And God even taught us to pray. But I think the greatest thing that God taught us through the death of Mike is this. God taught us to be desperate. God taught us that 
when there's something that we really feel like we need, when there's something that we, we really want and we really long for, prayer actually comes easily and naturally. I know so many of us struggle to pray. I know I struggle and wrestle with prayer. And yet what Mike's death taught us is that when we do want something with that great intensity, when we know that we are in real need, we never fail to ask our God for help. In other words, through the death of Mike, God taught us to be desperate. And if that's true, our difficulty with prayer is not our understanding of prayer and it's not even our understanding of God. Our difficulty with prayer is actually our understanding of ourselves. Our difficulty is that most of the time we're not desperate. Most of the time we don't really believe that we are in need of God. Most of the time we think that we're fine without his help, that you know we can manage, that we have the resources to deal with the problems that we face. And part of our sinful hearts actually prefer it this way. We prefer to believe that we aren't really useless after all. We can't quite acknowledge the fact that not a second goes by where we do not need our God. It's very easy to live in the illusion of independence. But Mike's death shattered all of those illusions. Mike's sickness and death taught us to be desperate. And as all such moments in life ought to do. And to taught us when we are desperate, it's easy to pray. Now Mike died in June. And life goes on. We've begun to adapt to life without Mike. We have to. It's only natural. But in the process, I fear that we will forget what things were like during those long months of Mike's illness. I fear that we will forget our desperate need of God. I fear that we will recreate, we'll rebuild our illusion of independence. We will reimagine that we have the resources that we need to face life and that, no, we're really not quite that dependent upon God, are we? I fear that we will forget our smallness before our great king. That we will forget that actually we live in great need of our God every single second, every single hour of every single day, every moment of our lives. But if we can learn this last lesson of Mike well, if we can learn to be desperate before God, then I am confident to say that God has taught us more through Mike's death than he ever taught us through his life. It is true, Christian prayerlessness in my own life, in all of our lives, is as incomprehensible as it is prevalent. So more than anything else, I want us to remember our desperate need before our God. We need God. Every single person in this room, every single person that you've ever met or ever known needs God. Understand that, remember that, know that, and you will naturally pour out your heart to God in prayer. And he will listen. He will consider.
and he will answer and give us what is best as our loving Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our brother Mike. We thank you for who he was and who you made him to be. We thank you for all that he taught us. But Lord, we pray, help us to learn this last lesson of Mike's well. Help us to remember always our desperate need for you. Lord, we pray, shatter all those illusions of independence that we cling to. Help us to be small before you. And yet help us to be bold and confident to come into your presence. Help us to pour out all of our anxieties upon you, knowing that you are powerful and yet you care for us. Knowing that you can bear them all and in return you can give us peace. The peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. Teach us, Lord, to be a people of prayer. And this we petition you through the great king that you have given us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.